Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Caroline Fu, and I am a pediatric resident at the Medical College of Georgia. The topic of today's discussion will be on childhood vaccine hesitancy and how the pediatrician can address parental concerns about vaccination. To help with our discussion, I am joined by Dr. Donna Moore, who is a general pediatrician on faculty at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Moore. Thank you. It's great to be here. The development of vaccines is considered one of the greatest achievements of public health and medical science. Routine childhood vaccinations have led to the prevention of many once deadly infectious diseases and have saved millions of lives worldwide. That's correct. A big part of the well child visit in early childhood is centered on recommended immunization schedules. However, childhood vaccine hesitancy is also becoming an increasingly common challenge during routine visits. Yes, there seems to be so much public misinformation and misconceptions regarding the safety and efficacy of vaccines. And many of the information comes from unreliable, non-evidence-based sources, especially over the internet. So Dr. Moore, could you clarify to the listeners what we mean by vaccine hesitancy? Sure. According to the World Health Organization, vaccine hesitancy refers to the reluctance or refusal to vaccinate despite the availability of vaccines. Did you know that a national survey of parents by the Centers for Disease Control, or the CDC, found that among children 6 to 23 months, almost 20% of parents had delayed or refused at least one vaccine? And about 3% refused all vaccines. That's really concerning since many vaccines have prevented so many infectious diseases. So who are these vaccine-hesitant individuals that the media has dubbed anti-vaxxers? Well, as I've come to realize, it's actually not a homogenous group of people. But in reality, these individuals span a wide spectrum of backgrounds, ages, education, and attitudes regarding vaccinations. Dr. Moore, what have you encountered as a pediatrician in your practice regarding vaccine hesitancy? First, I would say the majority of my parents in my practice readily accept all of the vaccines that the American Academy of Pediatrics, or the AAP, recommends for their children. However, you are right. Vaccine hesitancy and refusal are much more complex and may stem from a variety of reasons, even for the same vaccine. Healthcare providers have the opportunity to serve a role in educating families on the benefits of vaccinations as well as the risks of not doing so. Currently, all states in the U.S., including the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, have immunization requirements for school entry. However, I also know that in all states, medical exemptions are allowed, and most states will allow for religious or philosophical exemptions. Yes, it's a bit controversial. While it's important to respect the opinions of parents, from a public health standpoint, these allowances potentially increase the adverse health risks for children who may have medical conditions that make them ineligible for certain vaccines. Well, what about the concept of herd immunity? I've heard this used as a reason parents choose not to vaccinate. Herd immunity is a concept that an entire population can be immune to a disease if a significant proportion of the population is vaccinated and therefore protected from the disease. 
Because the vast majority of individuals are protected from contracting and spreading the disease, those who are unable to receive the vaccine are also protected. Dr. Moore, what proportion of a population needs to be vaccinated in order to achieve herd immunity? That actually varies by transmissibility of the specific disease. For example, for diseases that are highly contagious, like pertussis and measles, at least 95% vaccination is required for a population to be immune. However, we have seen that there are regional tendencies for vaccine refusal, so herd immunity is less likely to be achieved in those areas. Unfortunately, this also increases the risk of outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases in those areas. The AAP therefore supports limitations on non-medical exemptions to vaccine requirements. So what have you found successful in your practice for addressing vaccine hesitancy? This is a conversation that every pediatrician will likely address in their career. So we always need to be informed, updated, and prepared. An important step to addressing vaccine hesitancy is initiating and maintaining ongoing dialogue with parents. It's been shown that the decision of parents with various levels of concerns regarding vaccination are strongly affected by their interaction with healthcare providers. In other words, we should build relationships and trust with individual families. This makes it a bit easier to begin understanding why a parent may be hesitant about immunizations and educate appropriately. Good point. It is so easy to get caught up focusing on general public health benefits and the eradication of vaccine-preventable diseases, but having a more personal approach will help build that trust. Personalize the message with families. Communicate that your intention is to help decrease the risk that their child will develop a vaccine-preventable illness and potential long-term consequences. Remember, you are not there to debate, but to educate based on evidence-based knowledge as a healthcare professional. Do your best to avoid words that may sound judgmental or confrontational. For example, it can help to use a prescriptive rather than a suggestive approach. Begin the conversation with, it's time for your child's HPV vaccine, rather than asking, would you like your child to receive her HPV vaccine today? Oh, I like that. Dr. Moore, although we are not going to discuss the COVID-19 vaccine today, the debate surrounding safety of vaccines has definitely been a hot topic lately. But there is so much misinformation out there. What's your approach to discussing the safety of vaccines in general? As providers, it is helpful to understand the process of vaccine approval for the public. This way, we can better educate families on safety. Before a vaccine is approved, it must undergo a series of steps to ensure safety and efficacy. Caroline, what do you know about the first step of vaccine approval? Once a vaccine has been developed, it undergoes a phase one trial. This involves a small group of healthy individuals to test for safety and the ability to produce an immune response. That's right. Vaccines are first tested on healthy adults before being tested on children, and subsequently, if appropriate, on infants. What about the next step? That would be the phase two trials, which are designed to assess the vaccine dose and schedule for the most optimal administration. 
Yes, the trials involve a larger group, meaning hundreds to thousands of individuals and more diverse numbers of participants to evaluate safety and immune response. There is then a phase three trial, which utilizes randomized controlled trials and includes thousands of participants from the intended population to assess safety and efficacy. Once all of this is done, the vaccine can then be submitted to the FDA for approval. And even after a vaccine is released, there is still close ongoing monitoring for side effects. That's right. An important resource is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. This is a national early warning system to detect possible safety problems in U.S. licensed vaccines. This system is co-managed by the CDC and FDA. Healthcare professionals are required to report certain adverse events. Vaccine manufacturers are also required to report all adverse events that come to their attention. Reports are investigated and interventions are made if appropriate. Wow, there definitely is an extensive process to ensuring the safety of vaccines. These are good points we can bring up to reassure anxious parents. I'd like to shift our conversation to discussing some specific concerns brought up commonly by families. We will start with a topic that has garnered a lot of public attention in recent decades by introducing our first case. Preston, age two, is brought by his father to establish care. You notice that he is behind on his shots and offer a catch-up regimen. Dad responds, no, never again. My older child got autism from his one-year-old shots. How would you respond? Well, I would start by digging into the roots of his concern. Much of this parent's concern probably stems from a now-retracted case series published in The Lancet many years ago describing a link between the measles, mumps, rubella, or the MMR vaccine and autism. Although studies have since been conducted with hundreds of thousands of children which have not found a link between autism and the MMR vaccine, this is still a commonly encountered parental concern. I have also heard that thimerosal is commonly singled out as a culprit. Dr. Moore, where did the hype about thimerosal come from? Thimerosal is a mercury-containing substance which was used in vaccines as a preservative. Much of the confusion, however, comes from the fact that a substance called methylmercury does lead to neurotoxicity. However, thimerosal is metabolized into ethylmercury, which is safe, not methylmercury. Nevertheless, out of an abundance of caution, Thimerosal has been removed from most vaccines. The only vaccines administered today that contain thimerosal are multi-dose vials of the flu vaccine and one brand of the tetanus booster. However, there are alternative formulations of these which do not contain thimerosal. Good to know. But how can we address this father's concerns that his other child was diagnosed with autism after receiving the MMR vaccine and other one-year-old shots? This feels like an uphill battle. It's important to consider the trajectory of development in neurotypical children. Caroline, what normally happens to a child's language development after 12 months of age? Well, thinking back to well-child visits, their vocabulary usually increases exponentially over the months after the one-year visit. 
Exactly. Autism and normal development are screened extensively between one to three years of age with the pediatrician, which is also when the majority of childhood vaccinations are given. So many might inadvertently associate autism with vaccine administration because it occurs around the same period of time. Yes, that is crucial to keep in mind. Many vaccines are administered in combination with each other, which means multiple injections. What about the parent that thinks it is too painful for the child to get so many injections on the same day? What are some ways we can make the experience a little less painful for both patient and parent? This is where we can get fun and creative with distraction techniques. A child life specialist, if available, can help to keep the child occupied while the vaccine is being administered. A topical analgesic may also be applied to the area of injection, and Sweeties, which is a sucrose and water oral solution, can also be given. The injection of vaccines can also be less painful by quick administration, keeping the patient upright, and giving the most painful one, such as the IM injection, last. Patients and parents can be assured that pain from vaccine administration is temporary and may be relieved with over-the-counter analgesics. These are all great ideas, but I've also encountered parents who express concern that giving too many vaccines at the same time will overwhelm the child's immune system. Is there any truth to this concern? No, this is another common misconception. According to studies performed, an infant can theoretically simultaneously receive and make appropriate immune responses against thousands of vaccines. Wow, that's amazing. Indeed it is. Actually, the number of total antigens contained in recommended vaccines today is significantly lower than in previous decades, despite there being a greater number of total vaccines available. The total number of proteins in the vaccine given in the 1960s to 80s was about 3,000 versus only 120 in 2000. Really? How did that happen? This is partially due to the eradication of smallpox, which rendered the vaccine unnecessary, as the smallpox vaccine contained roughly 200 antigens. Another contributing factor to the decrease in antigens contained is the improvement in technology with the replacement of the whole cell with the acellular pertussis vaccine. Oh, I see. Despite presenting these facts, many parents are still going to be asking to space out their children's vaccines. Dr. Moore, how should I respond to parents who demand an alternative schedule? Parents should be informed that there is only one extensively studied and approved vaccination schedule. The schedule is based on when the child is most likely to contract or have serious consequences from an illness. Alternative schedules have not been studied. I remember when I was a child, my question was, do I need shots, rather than how many shots am I getting? I feel like scheduling multiple visits would have just made me more nervous than just getting it all over with at one visit. Exactly. Besides the anxiety inflicted on children, spacing out vaccines beyond the recommended schedule requires parents to make multiple separate visits to the physician office, which costs both time and money. It sounds like alternative schedules should only be used as a last resort rather than offered as an equally viable option. That's right. 
Another issue which frequently comes up involves parents who are concerned that vaccines are not natural. They believe that natural immunity is the best means of defense. After all, a patient only needs to contract the disease once to achieve immunity, while vaccines often require booster doses. It is true that natural infection is one way to achieve immunity. However, parents are taking a much greater gamble with the natural method. How so? Let's use something which used to be part of everyone's childhood as an example, like chickenpox. Everyone knows that chickenpox can cause unsightly scarring, but many are not aware that can also lead to life-threatening conditions. This includes serious bacterial skin infections, severe dehydration, pneumonia, and encephalitis. How often do these happen? According to the CDC, before the vaccine was made available in the United States, tens of thousands of individuals were hospitalized and hundreds of people died each year from varicella. Encephalitis occurs in 1 in 50,000 unvaccinated children as a result of varicella. Prior to the vaccine being available, about 1 in 100,000 children aged 1 to 14 died of varicella. These were often immunocompetent patients. Wow, that sounds like a risk not worth taking. On the other hand, the most common side effects from the varicella vaccine, as with many vaccines, include injection site pain, low-grade fever, and mild rash. Parents should be assured that side effects are usually transient, so benefit outweighs the risk of not getting the vaccine. That's right. Okay, we've had a great discussion so far, but let's move on to our next clinical case. Bobby is a term infant presenting for his two-month well visit. Towards the end of the visit, you mentioned that Bobby is due for his immunizations, to which mom responds, I read somewhere that vaccines were made with aborted fetuses. As a devout Catholic, I cannot condone that. I'm not sure how I would respond to this, Dr. Moore. What are your thoughts? Yes, this is actually a common comment from vaccine-hesitant parents that may seem a bit strange if you don't know the history of vaccine development and various religious perspectives and values. Caroline, let's clarify how this idea about aborted fetuses and vaccines developed. Sure. In the 1960s, cell lines obtained from two aborted fetuses were used as media to propagate viral growth for vaccine production. Remember that unlike bacteria, viruses cannot self-replicate without a host cell. These cell lines from the 1960s continue to be used today. Yes, In Catholicism, as with many other religions around the world, life is believed to be a sacred gift which begins at conception. With this in mind, it's clear to see how this early development with aborted fetuses may pose major concerns. Agree. However, we should emphasize that the original fetuses were not aborted for the purpose of creating or performing research on vaccines. The families chose to abort the fetuses for personal reasons. Furthermore, additional aborted fetuses are not required to manufacture vaccines. And vaccines do not contain genetic material from these aborted fetuses. 
Various religious leaders have released statements in support of vaccinations while simultaneously not condoning abortion. Links to such can be found in the show notes. Besides the fetal cell usage in the history of vaccine development, what are some other religious reasons for vaccine hesitancy? Another common concern is the use of gelatin, which is often derived from pork. Gelatin is used as a stabilizer in vaccines. This may be a concern for religious groups that forbid the consumption of pork, such as in Judaism or Islam. However, many Jewish and Muslim scholars have approved the use of vaccines since the medium of delivery of vaccines is injection, not ingestion. Also, the scholars note that the purpose of vaccines is medicinal, not dietary. The Islamic Organization for Medical Sciences have also noted that pork is extensively broken down and transformed into the gelatin product used in vaccines and is therefore not contrary to Islamic law. Good to know. So, Dr. Moore, we have discussed a lot about how to educate parents about vaccine hesitancy, but what about medical contraindications for vaccines? There are medical contraindications for vaccinations for certain individuals. In general, live vaccines, which include measles, mumps, rubella, varicella, rotavirus, yellow fever, and tuberculosis, as well as the intranasal influenza and oral polio vaccines should not be given to immunocompromised individuals. These patients can acquire full-blown disease from receiving live vaccines. What about patients with HIV? Patients with HIV may receive certain live vaccines based on appropriate CD4 counts. Are some vaccines okay for certain immunocompromised individuals? Different immune deficiencies also have different restrictions on which live vaccines can and cannot be safely given. For example, patients with phagocyte disorders, such as chronic granulomatous disease, or CGD, and leukocyte adhesion deficiency, or LAD, should not receive live bacterial vaccines. However, they may receive live viral vaccines. Good to know. What about patients undergoing chemotherapy? Children who are receiving chemotherapy should not receive any live vaccines until several months after therapy, depending on the specific chemotherapy regimen. It sounds like there are a lot of disease-specific recommendations which can be difficult to keep track of. Dr. Moore, is there a resource that providers can access to remind us of these? Yes, the Red Book published by the AAP can provide more specific details about vaccine safety in individuals with certain medical conditions. The CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices also provides guidance on contraindications and precautions to certain vaccines. What about inactivated vaccines? Good question. Immunocompromised individuals should receive all recommended age-appropriate inactivated vaccines. In fact, these patients often require extra doses of certain vaccines, like the pneumococcal or meningococcal vaccinations, for asplenic patients. Caroline, what are some other contraindications to vaccinations? Like any medication, vaccines are not 100% safe for every patient. 
Patients who have exhibited an anaphylactic reaction to a prior dose or to any component of the vaccine should not receive that vaccine. Such components commonly include egg, gelatin, yeast, and latex, which can be used as antigens, stabilizers, or preservatives. However, anaphylaxis to one vaccine or component does not preclude receiving all other vaccines. Very good. It is also important to note that an anaphylactic response to vaccines is a rare occurrence, occurring in less than one in one million doses. Also, vaccinations are generally given in a medical setting with a brief observation periods so that appropriate intervention can be performed in the unlikely event of a severe allergic reaction. There are also contraindications that are specific to certain vaccines. Caroline, can you give an example? One example includes pertussis-containing vaccines, such as the tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis, or Tdap. Patients who develop encephalopathy within seven days of receiving a pertussis vaccine should not receive further doses of pertussis-containing vaccines. That's correct. Another example is the rotavirus vaccine. There was a link found between the rotashield vaccine and intussusception. My understanding is that the rotashield vaccine is no longer administered. That's right, and the currently administered rotavirus vaccine has not been shown to be associated with intussusception. However, because of the history with the rotashield vaccine, the rotavirus vaccine is currently not routinely given to patients with a history of intussusception. Dr. Moore, as a soon-to-be-practicing pediatrician, I am concerned that parents will continue to refuse certain or all vaccines, no matter how much education I provide. I've heard of practices refusing to see such patients. Some practices do indeed dismiss such families. Continuing to see these patients can potentially endanger other patients in the waiting room by exposing them to vaccine-preventable illnesses. These patients may begin to cluster in those practices that do accept vaccine refusers, and such a gathering of unvaccinated individuals can increase the chance of outbreak. I can see that the question of whether or not to continue to see vaccine refusers is not a straightforward one. Dr. Moore, what does the AAP say about this? The AAP does endorse the option to consider dismissal of such individuals. However, dismissal of families, if done, should only be carried out as a last resort after careful ongoing dialogue with the family. Physicians should never abandon patients and should provide these families a way to find and transition to a new medical home. They should be available to provide care for a certain period of time as the patient makes this transition. It is important to emphasize that such disagreements should not compromise the care provided to the patient. Are there any tools for providers who choose to continue to see families who refuse vaccines? The AAP offers refusal to vaccinate forms on its website, which providers are encouraged to have parents sign at each visit. These forms serve as a means of documentation that the parents are refusing the recommended vaccines despite being provided education. This not only can serve as legal protection for the physicians, but can also be a means of facilitating ongoing dialogue regarding vaccine education.
That sounds like a very helpful resource. We will provide a link to both an English and a Spanish version of the forms in the show notes. All right, so we've covered quite a bit in today's discussion, but it's time to wrap up the episode. Dr. Moore, let's summarize our main points of discussion. Sure, I will get us started. Vaccine hesitancy is a common issue encountered by pediatricians. It poses an enormous risk to public health as evidenced by outbreaks of vaccine-preventable illnesses that have occurred in recent years. But pediatricians can play a valuable role in educating families regarding the safety and importance of receiving appropriate childhood immunizations. Good rapport and ongoing dialogue with vaccine-hesitant parents is important. It's important that providers have an understanding of the development of vaccines, as well as various cultural and religious values that may affect the decision to vaccinate. Using evidence-based knowledge is helpful when educating and clarifying possible misinformation parents might have regarding vaccine safety. I like to personalize the message by expressing concern about the individual patient. Some physicians may feel comfortable sharing why he or she chose to vaccinate their own children. You may also choose to share stories about those affected by vaccine-preventable illnesses as effective modes of education. Fortunately, many parents who are skeptical about vaccines are genuinely just seeking additional information and reassurance and will accept vaccination for their children with proper education. There are medical contraindications for certain individuals who are immunocompromised regarding live vaccines, but all inactivated vaccines are safe for these individuals. Certain live vaccines are okay for specific immunocompromised states. Stay up to date with resources from AAP and CDC to ensure appropriate counseling. Finally, some parents will continue to refuse vaccines despite extensive counseling. While dismissal of vaccine-refusing families is controversial, patient abandonment is never acceptable. Dismissal should only be used as a last resort with provision of ample advance notice and means of transition to a different provider. Dr. Moore, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I've enjoyed the discussion today and hope the listeners feel a bit more confident about educating vaccine-hesitant families. An additional thanks to Dr. Rebecca Yang and Dr. Nathan Wilson who provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Check out our show notes for more information and an opportunity to receive free CME credit sponsored by the Medical College of Georgia. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. Thank you.